thank you, Brother Dale. We are going to start a new psalm tonight, Psalm 25. Shouldn't be too hard to find. We were in 24 last week and finished it up. Now we're going to hit number 25. So uh, if you'll go ahead and open up your Bibles, I'd like to have a quick word of prayer before we uh, start in this, okay? Father, I thank you for every person that's here tonight. It blesses me, and I pray that they feel good about it, and pray that they are blessed of you, and pray that they are learning and growing, and pray that they've already enjoyed praising you and the fellowship. It just seems to change a whole day whenever we get together with uh, the people of God, and when we get to sing songs that uplift Jesus Christ and remind us of how blessed we are and we need that, Lord. We have a, such a negative, dark world. And uh, we know that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But we're just going to say not tonight. We want to rejoice in the Lord and in the abundance that you give us, the abundant life you've promised us. And so we want to yield and surrender to you and ask you to bless us as we take a look at Psalm 25. And Lord, I also have it on my heart tonight to pray for Isaac and uh, all of our students that are at the United Conference tonight. And as they get ready for this big weekend, I pray for lots of teenagers to attend. I pray for them to hear the gospel. I pray for them to repent of their sins and to trust in Christ. I pray for a spiritual awakening among our youth all over our city and in all of our churches. And I pray tonight, of course, for... Uh, Brother Max, and to pray for our Hispanic ministry and to ask you to bless them tonight. And I pray for our Wana clubs. And, oh, Lord, as I think about little children learning the Word of God, I pray, Lord, that as it says in the book of James, that they would receive the engrafted Word that's able to save their souls. And so we pray for them tonight, and we pray for them that as they learn and as they grow, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And I pray that that would happen in a fantastic way, a way that brings glory and honor to you. So, Lord, we pray, would you do in us tonight, in this room, whatever it pleases you to do. We love you again, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, if you will uh, take a look at uh, Psalm 25. And I don't know... Uh, what Bible version that you have. But I learned this psalm way, way back. We used to have songs, scripture songs and things that we would sing. And the, the Maranatha singers and all of the praise albums that came out. And uh, this is one of them that I remember very well. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Remember that? Oh, my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. And then it would say, Remember not the sins of my youth. Remember not the sins of my youth. Oh, my God. I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. And it would echo and all of those kind of things like they would do back then. But uh, after all these years, some 40 years, uh, this 
old brain still remembers that. Singing scripture songs is a great way to memorize the Word of God. Even if you make up your own tunes, there's nothing wrong with that. And it kind of sticks it into your brain. And uh, there are those times when you will be going through something and maybe you can't remember exactly where the scripture is found, but a song pops into your mind. You ever had that happen? Some, you get a song on your heart and uh, then you think, I need to go look that up. And then you find it, find that it's in the Bible. Because so many times we talk about doing things like, uh, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, we sang right now. But most people don't use the one that they have. It's kind of sad the way there are people who think the singing just doesn't matter. It's not really important. It's not that big a deal. We pray for showers of blessing, but we don't come to church when it rains. And uh, we could go on and on, could we not? And uh, this is because we have it in our minds that life is supposed to be a certain way. And if it deviates from what the, I have, the picture I have in my mind, well, then God's messed up. Everything's fallen apart. And uh, we forget that one of the hallmark doctrines of the Scripture is the sovereignty of God and that the steps of the righteous are ordered of God. When you go through a valley, it's because you're supposed to go through a valley. When there are hard times that come into your life, it's because there's something for you to learn and something for you to experience. And David is going through something. We don't know what it is. We don't need to know because we can all kind of identify it. We all go through those times when things just kind of go sour. Now, sometimes it's because we deviate. Sometimes it's because we disobey and we understand that. But there are other times when we're doing everything we know to do, everything as well as we can possibly do it, and then there are attacks that come. There are betrayals that take place. There are heartaches. There are problems. There are troubles that, that will uh, affect our lives. And so uh, David is going through something here, and so he writes these words. We, uh, I sang them a while ago, but let's read them now. Psalm 25, and we're just going to look at the first uh, four or five verses tonight. And it says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You know, our soul, let me just stop and say, they tend to sink. They tend to, sometimes you have to lift up your soul. You have to look up and you have to present it unto the Lord. And you have to realize just how blessed you really are. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let none who wait on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation on you I wait all the day now whenever we think about what David says in here a couple of times he mentions don't let me be ashamed don't let me be ashamed now I think that's important because we hear that word a lot today people will say oh you shamed me or I went to church and I was shamed and I went over here and I was shamed I talked to my parents and I was shamed okay the modern idea of being shamed is when somebody points out something wrong I mean it's just as simple as that there are a lot of people that they don't want to ever be corrected uh, I know people 
that have come into my office. Oh, I've got this problem and I need to know what to do. You've got to help me. And they're pretty desperate until you point out something that they need to correct. You point out something they're doing wrong, then they won't come back and talk to you anymore because they want just to be affirmed. That's a big deal now, isn't it? Just affirm me. Just tell me I'm right and my spouse is wrong. Tell me that I'm right and the teacher's wrong. Tell me that I'm right and the church is wrong. Tell me that I'm right and my friend is wrong. That's not counseling. That doesn't give you any wisdom. That doesn't do you any good at all. Because the way that an athlete learns how to be a better ball player is to have the coach tell him what he's doing wrong and then tell him how to get it fixed, how to correct it. Now, of course, we don't want to ever get into the point where all we see is the wrong. That's a bad way to discipline your children. That's a bad way to deal with other people. But at the same time, if we are not growing in the Lord where we can kind of... uh, Let's just put it this way. you got to be able to take a punch every once in a while because the Holy Spirit doesn't just pat you on the back and say, good job, good job, oh, that's great. Sometimes it's funny when you go watch little kids play t-ball or basketball or something like that. Uh, You want to be affirming and encouraging to them. And so, you know, what happens? They take a shot and they miss it by a mile. Oh, good job, good effort, way to go. And uh, I found out, in a hurry that when somebody says good effort it usually means you messed up and they're just trying to be nice you know that kind of thing but in order for them to develop to play professionally or anything like that uh, take all of the professional ball players that you like to watch in any sport and at one time they were the little kids where they just tried real hard and all you said was way to go good hustle uh, man you were you really put your all into it even though they played terrible because they have to learn and along the way there will be a coach that will say you you don't have your feet in the right place you you've got to have a wider stance or you are putting your weight on the wrong like if you're batting you're putting your weight on the wrong foot at the wrong time or something like that I remember uh, one time we were playing softball years ago and we had this guy that was uh, on our team and he was in the outfield. He was playing center field. And I remember somebody popped, uh, uh, they had a pop fly, it went up really, really high. And this guy kind of had a high voice and it was sort of funny because you heard him go, I got it, I got it, I got it. And about the time the ball arced, you know what I mean? He goes, I don't have it, I don't have it. And everybody has to run and go, you know, Until you can admit where you're wrong and see where you're wrong and correct those things, you really don't improve. And a lot of people don't improve in their marriage. They don't improve in their finances. They don't improve in personal relationships. Is because they never want to face what they really are. It's always somebody else's fault. There's always some excuse. There's always some reason that it didn't go quite the way that it needed to go. And uh, so they don't ever uh, improve or anything like that. Now, David, in this prayer, what blessed me is, David is, in uh, so many words, he's saying, I got trouble. I've messed up. And I'm looking to you. I can't look to myself anymore. I can't look to the people around you. Unto you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You know, uh, as I said earlier, the soul tends to sink. It tends to get mired down. I saw a video today of a, a kid who got caught in quicksand. And uh, the more he struggled, the harder it was for him 
to get out of the quicksand. I think in the world we live in, our souls are walking through quicksand every once in a while. And the harder we try and the more we struggle, the more we seem to sink. The more we try to get it right, the more we try to remember the right thing to say. I saw a, a guy on a, on a reel that he was uh, an attorney, and he talked about the tricks and the uh, tools that attorneys use to take a conversation like in a courtroom, in a cross-examination, and they take things and they turn them around, twist them around to make them go their way. Well, you can take those things and learn it and then go back home and say, I'm going to try that with uh, my spouse tonight. And I'm going to make sure I don't just react. I'm going to be real careful to say the right thing. And then you find yourself not able to do that or it doesn't work the way you thought it was going to work. I saw one guy... Uh, he said he had expert marriage uh, tips and he said how to end an argument with your wife and he said the first thing you say is you need to calm down he said that ought to take care of it and then the other thing you need to say to her is don't get so hysterical about things and uh, you know and see if that works and his wife is behind him just frowning and she says well I don't think that's going to work at all and he goes but here's another way and he has a squirt bottle and he turns around and he squirts her in the face and she I can't believe you just did that. So he squirts her again. And she goes, good night. She walks off and he goes, I think it just worked. Okay? Expert marriage tips. I mean, when we think about everything we hear from the world, everything we hear from people who are supposed to be experts, but they can't get their own life together, when we think about the things that people are telling us in the media, politicians, all of these kind of things, stuff comes up. And so we pick up on their buzzwords. And we say, well, you know, I had trouble and I came back to church and I was, I was, I was shamed by everybody. Okay? And I went to see a counselor, I went to see a pastor, and all I felt was shame. Okay? Well, maybe that's because you've done something wrong. Maybe that's your conscience. Maybe, you ready for this? This will fry some people. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is saying, no, you're not okay. And no, you didn't do right. And no, you didn't put a good effort in it. No, there's no way to go. You tried hard because you really didn't try hard. You were doing things in your own strength. You were doing things in your own power. You were doing things for your own uh, well-being and your own glory, so to speak. And so uh, what has to happen? Your soul is sinking down in the mire, the muck, and the mud, and the sewage of this world. And like quicksand, the more you try and the more you struggle, the more you sink down. Is that a vivid enough picture? And some people just go, well, I'll just quit. Christianity doesn't work. Church doesn't work. The Bible doesn't work. I tried it. I tried it. Well, how long did you try it? And was it focused intensity over time? Or was it just a hit and miss here and there because you'll never improve if you don't get it right and so David knew that the world had nothing really to offer him <clears throat> and so he starts off with this prayer unto you O Lord I lift up my soul and he's pulling his soul his mind his will and his emotions he's pulling them out of the gutter and some people want the blessing of God, but they still got their mind in the gutter. They're still making gutter decisions, and they still have gutter feelings instead of lifting up their soul unto the Lord. Clean this thing up. Fix this thing up. I'm making bad decisions here because my soul, things are not right in my life. 
I am feeling bad and I'm taking my bad feelings out on others because I don't have the joy of the Lord. I need my soul, my mind, will, and emotions to be lifted up and it's got to be lifted up out of the gutter of this world. But you say that to people and they go, well, I'm going to go to somebody because there's a real smiley preacher on TV and he never mentions anything like you do. Yeah, and he doesn't do anybody any good either. You got to do what's right and a doctor that just kind of says oh you're doing great when you've got cancer is killing you okay you've got to hear the truth so David uh, understands that what we have in 21st century America uh, doesn't work uh, in his life there's got to be correction and, and uh, you know when when people point out things in your life, they could be doing it for, with a wrong motive. That's certainly true. We're all sinners and we're all depraved. They may be trying to get back at you or kind of, you know, poking you with a, with a spiritual stick or something like that. And so if you're doing that, stop it. Quit it. Gossip, slander, putting other people down is a sin. And so I'm calling you out if you're one of those kind of people. Stop it. And then the other thing is... We've got to quit being so incredibly sensitive when somebody may be actually trying to help us. Now, if they're trying to help you and they're pointing out something that you're doing wrong, that's the most loving thing you can do. It's a very unloving thing just to leave it alone and let you wreck. It's an unloving thing to just say, oh, they'll figure it out on their own, and, and you don't. And so we've got to get all of this right and so modern-day shame sometimes comes because you pointed out something wrong and you hurt my feelings. Sometimes it's by giving correction. You say, well, how could giving correction uh, ever shame somebody? Well, it's like this. If somebody comes up and says, here, let me tell you a better way to preach Psalm 25, my defenses immediately come up. You're correcting me, which means you're telling me I'm wrong. Well... Now, sometimes somebody might say, you know, there's a better way to do that. There's a better way to handle that text. And I should be uh, mature enough and happy enough that they care enough to be able to actually look at that and learn and grow from it, right? And that's the way we ought to be in every aspect of our life. But our culture today, we don't want anything pointed out that's wrong. And we certainly don't want to hear correction, we certainly don't want to hear you put too much salt in that or you didn't use enough flour or this would work a whole lot better if you would use, you know, a different kind of dish or something like that. So you're saying I'm wrong and we immediately get our hackles up and so we don't learn. And so we have generation after generation that does not learn positive or negatively from their older uh, generations that are before them because, you know, you just made me feel bad and that may not be the goal. And so the Bible points out sin, but it points out sin in order that it might correct us and uh, that we might not make the same mistakes over and over and over and over and that we might actually make some progress. And I want to ask you a question. Doesn't spiritual progress sound really, really good? Don't you get tired of being in a rut? Don't you get tired of your wheels spinning? I uh, was driving along one time and I, uh, well, I uh, had a wreck and so I bought a new car and I bought me, uh, this is going to impress you like you would not believe, I bought a 1990 Geo Prism. Remember those? Man, that's like the Cadillac of cheap cars. But uh, 
It was the first car I had with front-wheel drive. Now, front-wheel drive, it means your front wheels are, the, are, the, are pulling. And I was out in the country. It was when we were at Chelsea. And I uh, realized I'd missed my turn. And so I just whipped the car around. Nobody was coming. And I whipped the car around and uh, kind of went down a little bit into the ditch. But on a rear-wheel drive car, your drive wheels are on the pavement. And it pulls you out. On a front wheel, the drive wheels are in the ditch. And it had rained a lot. And it was muddy. And I put it in reverse and hit the gas and... Not a good sound. All the mud coming up over there. And I mean, every time I tried, tried to rock it back and forth and all of that. And all it did was bury it. I know, what am I going to do? This is before cell phones. Can you remember those days? And there are no phone booths in rural Chelsea. So uh, what am I going to do? Lord, you're going to have to help me. And about that time, somebody came by. And uh, they had a truck. And they had a log chain. And they said, oh, did you get stuck? And I said, yeah, Sherlock, sure did. And uh, they hooked up the chain, and uh, they pulled me out. And about that time, a church member comes by, as would have it. And they just died laughing and, you know, came out and helped and all of that. Now, then they decided that I needed to have the obvious pointed out to me. When you have a front-wheel drive, you need to make sure that the front of the car stays up on the pavement or you'll end up in trouble like that again. Oh, you know, what great advice. Kind of made me mad a little bit. But you know what? They were right. And you know what? I never did that ever again. I was conscious of what was going on and what vehicle I was in and how I needed to make those, those kind of turns because things were different this time, okay? In other vehicles I'd had, I would have had no problem on all of that, but this was a different situation. Every once in a while, life puts you in a different situation and you are burying your drive wheels in the mud of the ditch and can't figure out why you're not getting out and yet you don't want anyone to point anything out or help you in any way or do anything any different. And yet in that situation, I was totally helpless without that guy with the log chain and the truck. Okay? David is in a situation here perhaps, that he's never been in before. David is in a situation now where I don't think the harp is in tune. David is in a situation where when somebody says, David, uh, how, how does that uh, Psalm 23 go? David probably, uh, hmm, I, I can't really remember. I remember the words, but I've forgotten the tune. And if somebody were to say, hey, David, you know, get something going. We need some hand clapping gospel music here. Tune up your heart and let's go. David just didn't have it in him because he was sinking. He was sinking. The Bible's real when we look at this. So unto you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Now, maybe he had lifted it up to um, maybe uh, a relationship. And all it did was trample it down. Maybe he lifted his soul up to possessions or victories in battle or riches or something like that. And all he got was trampled down. So this time he's going to try something different. And what is it he's going to do? Unto you, O Lord, I lift up 
my soul. And so David is going to take the correction and he's going to deal with the sin and he's going to actually fix it. And he is even willing to suffer through the natural consequences and the embarrassment of sin. Sometimes just the fact that you did it, I can't believe I did that, I'm so embarrassed. And so sometimes we have shame that comes along and sometimes it's it's we're just being a baby and then other times it is very very real and it is paralyzing and it is debilitating where do you go when that happens you don't want to show your face in public you don't want anybody to see you you don't want any of that going on you don't want to talk to anybody about it that's a good time to take it before the lord now the world says avoid embarrassment at all costs but sometimes in order to grow and in order to learn, you got to go out and you got to give it the old college try. And it doesn't look pretty. It doesn't look good. It may be uh, exactly wrong, but at least you tried. President Theodore Roosevelt said that he has no regard for the critic in the stands. It's the person who gets bloody in the arena, the person who tries. And they may look like a fool, I'm paraphrasing, and they may mess up on all of it, but at least they had the guts to try. And there are times in our Christian life when we look at things and we go, well, at least I'm going to try. At least I'm going to go out there and I'm going to learn from all of this. And so David is saying, in essence, in the verses we've looked at, I've tried everything else, now I'm going to try something new. And I'm going to lift my soul up unto the Lord. So, we uh, need to learn from, from David. In psychology today, it says uh, we can see evidence of shame in human babies and close relatives of humans such as apes. Obviously, they're evolutionary. And it says this may be because shame plays a part in the long-term survival of our and other species. Here's why. It makes us behave in ways that allow us to coexist with others. And it also makes us adhere to cultural norms and to follow laws. In that way, shame isn't always a bad thing. Shame can make us humble and give us humility. And it can teach us about boundaries. And without healthy shame we would have no way to understand how our behavior affects others and to manage it. And so there are some of you that there are certain things that you could do right now, but you're not going to because, oh, that would be embarrassing. That would be a terrible thing to do in the middle of a church service and with all the other people around me. So there are some things you may want to do, may even need to do, but you just don't do. And shame keeps that in line. And there are some that you obey traffic laws because you never know who's going to be around. You never know who's going to see you. You never know if your children or your grandchildren are watching you. And that shame that we feel kind of keeps us in line. So there's a healthy kind and there's a paralyzing kind of shame. Now when we talk about this in the Bible though, we need to understand it in this way. In the Bible... We are to certainly be humble. We are to be teachable. We are to be submissive to the will and the word of God. And we learn and we're confronted, convicted by the Holy Spirit. And we are corrected. 
And uh, think about this, when David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, what was the turnaround? David went for uh, nearly a year without doing anything until one prophet, the prophet Nathan, came to him, told him a story. David got all riled up, and then Nathan, I, I don't know what he did exactly, but I picture him with a bony finger going, you are the man. And man, it broke David. He was embarrassed. He was humiliated. But it corrected him too. And so uh, think of it like this. God has promised to correct his children. He disciplines us because he loves us. And he'll take it as far as it needs to go. And so there are some times when we get stubborn and prideful and try to handle things ourselves. And we find ourselves in more of a humiliating situation it's because most of the time we didn't go to the Lord and humble ourselves when you humble yourself it's a whole lot better than it is to you wait for all of the consequences to come and humiliate you like David was humiliated well this is a different situation this isn't about Bathsheba or anything but something is going on and so uh, David doesn't want to find himself to be um, ashamed, as he puts in here. And in the Bible, the word ashamed actually means to come up empty. To come up empty. I put my trust in the Lord. I followed the Lord. I was public about all of it. And now look, where did I end up? And David says, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. And David is actually praying here that as he follows the Lord, other people would see his joy. Other people would see success in his life. Other people would see him to uh, be happy and to be prosperous in everything that he does. And so think about that. Sometimes we may say, well, I've never been ashamed of Jesus, but I know he's often been ashamed of me. And uh, th that's not entirely honest. Because there are those times we should speak up for the Lord and we don't. There are those times when we kind of feel our face getting red when someone asks us about our faith or about our church or something from the Bible and, and we don't answer it the way that we should or act the way that we should. And there are those times when we're ashamed of the Lord and ashamed of His Word. Paul even had to tell Timothy. Timothy was his protege. Timothy was his pastor. And he has to write to him, Don't be ashamed of the Lord or of me, his prisoner. Why? Because we do it. That's the kind of stuff that we live in. And then we suffer the consequences. And if we don't get it corrected, it ends up in a humiliating situation when it could have been easily corrected at an earlier time. So this prayer uh, that David is praying here, let's talk about it for a few minutes before we're through. At number one, his prayer was directed to God. And our tendency is to go, well, duh. I mean, we've got a whole Bible, 66 books that we read from, and we know that, well, of course you pray to God. Well, keep in mind, the times in which David lived, he did not have a Bible. He did not have thousands of years of Christian history and all of that. He had the law of God, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And uh, he had some Psalms, some that he had written and some that others had written. But that's really just about all that he had. And uh, when you think about the world in which he lived in, what was it, the one thing that the Jews kept going to that made God so angry? Idolatry, right? 
The worship of other gods. So when David says, unto thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul, that's kind of a big deal for the time that he lived. He's taking a public stand for the Lord. None of these other idols, none of these other gods, none of these other religions, none of it has anything to offer me. My soul is going to go before the Lord. And so David, living in a world of polygamy, and with the Jews battling idolatry, I mean, they know sooner than got out of Egypt than they've got golden calf, a golden calf that they are worshiping there. I mean, that was the all around David in this, and he's taking a very, very bold stand because the Jews would kind of worship Yahweh in the temple, and then they might worship uh, Baal over here just in case, you know, because sometimes uh, what you do for God doesn't work. And um, I think it's very interesting that at the beginning of the Ten Commandments and so many other places in Exodus 20, the very first thing God says is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image. For that idea of correction and the blessing of God, freeing them from slavery, uh, the Lord just kept hammering that and hammering that and hammering that because the Jews had this tendency to worship things that could not deliver them, that could not lift up their soul, that could not do anything for them. And don't look real spiritual because we look to other things and other people besides the Lord very often as well, don't we? Number two, notice that his prayer was personal it was heartfelt, and yet it was confident. Oh, my God. Now, we always told our kids when they were little, you can't say, oh, my God. That's using God's name in vain because so many people use it like that. And when they would read a passage like this, they would go, oh, you can't say that. But David is saying it in a heartfelt way, the right way. Oh, my God. What is he saying there? You belong to me, and I belong to you. You love me, I love you. We are close together, and I, my confidence is in you. Oh, my God, I trust in you, and let me not be ashamed. What is he saying there? Remember, let me not come up empty for this. Let me not come up just being embarrassed and uh, have other people say, oh, he cried out to his God and nothing happened. You think about Jesus on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it was Eli, uh, Eli, Eli, Lamai, Sabachthani. And uh, what do they say to him? Oh, he's calling Elijah. What good is that going to do? Well, let's see if his God saves him. He saved others. And if you really are the Messiah, come down from the cross. What a humiliating, embarrassing situation. Except that it was the will of God for Jesus to be on the cross. And that's why he was there. But David is saying, don't let me come up empty where people look at me and point their finger and say, he trusted God. He did it God's way. And what did he get for it? And so uh, that's something that we need to think about as well. How well do we testify of God? How well is our walk with God going? Are we bearing spiritual fruit? Can other people see it? Or are we ashamed and we're just coming up empty? Let not my enemies triumph over me. So this is personal. Oh my God, not generic. It's not formal. It's not just an empty word. It's not just vain repetition. I uh, saw an old movie not too long ago. And the guy's on death row. And uh, he's getting ready to go to the chair. 
the electric chair. And when he does, they have a priest that's walking with him. And as they're walking down there, they're going, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And I thought, isn't that something? We trust a lot of times in just the empty repetition of words. And Jesus was very clear when he said, When we pray, don't be like the heathen who pray in vain or empty repetition. Well, not David. Man, he is into this. And it is personal and it's heartfelt. He said, I trust in you exclusively. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to the carved images. God is saying there, don't try to play halfway with me, a little of this and a little of this, because... That's what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea. I'll spew you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. You're good for nothing. And that's what was going on in these Old Testament passages. The Jews were trying to say, well, we still offered the Passover lamb, but we also went over here to the festival at Baal. And it'll be okay. It'll be okay. We're just covering all of our bases. And they weren't exclusively committed to the Lord. And he said, I'm not sharing my glory with anyone else. And so, uh, so many times, Israel found themselves humiliated instead of being humble. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want grace? Humble yourself before the Lord, and in due season, He will lift you up. But we don't like to do that. We like to continue on in our stubbornness. And David says, no, this time it's going to be different. Don't let me be humiliated from the uh, destruction that pride and arrogance will bring their way. Remember, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And folks, it's pride that keeps us from turning to the Lord. And he says, don't let me be defeated. Don't let my enemies be the triumphant ones. I don't want to be defeated because of self-sufficiency. Number three, his prayer was actually a surrender to the will of God. Now, we think that praying is strong-arming God, and we're going to tell him, and we're going to claim his promises, and we're going to demand that he do what we tell him to do. Well, good luck with that. Prayer is a surrender. Prayer is not twisting God's arm and getting him to do in heaven what I want done on earth. Uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is what Jesus taught us to pray. So prayer is surrender. And he said, indeed, let, though, uh, let the one who waits on you, let not the one, excuse me, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. I knew that didn't sound right. And let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. And when you uh, think about that, whenever you wait on somebody... It kind of means they're in control, doesn't it? And so when you go to the doctor's office, what is the first area you enter out there? It's the waiting room. Yeah, the waiting room. You don't go in, demand to see the doctor and just walk in. I would suppose if you went to the White House, if you were able to go in, you wouldn't walk in and just go to the Oval Office and say, Hey, Joe, what's up? I got a feeling you would wait 
on him. And in the days that David would write on this, when you came to see the king, you would wait and you wait. You saw the king on the king's terms according to the king's timetable and according to whatever uh, he wishes to do at that particular time. Why? Because you're not the king. And David is saying here, I may have a crown on my head and I may have a throne, I may have a palace, but you're the king, so I'm waiting on you whenever you're ready. And so many times we get frustrated with our prayer life. Well, God doesn't seem to be answering. Well, he answers every prayer. Yes, no, or wait. And sometimes the wait is the hard thing to handle. And David is surrendering himself to the Lord and waiting on him. He's not telling God what to do. He's asking, not demanding or dictating terms to God. And the faithful are the ones who are patiently waiting on God's timing, which, of course, is always perfect. We say, doesn't the Bible say we're to come before him boldly? Keep in mind, boldly does not mean arrogantly. It means confidently. And we don't come before the Lord confident in us. Well, I've done really good this week, so I have the right to enter your presence and pray. I never have that right except through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the perfect sacrifice. And I come confidently because God has invited me in because of what Christ has done for me. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, it says, By which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You know what that's saying? God has given sinners like you and me promises that we can claim. How many of them do you know? How many of them are you claiming? And how many are of them are you patiently waiting on God to fulfill? It's a difficult thing for humans like us And we're more immature than we would like to admit. And uh, so that's why we have to do this fourth thing as well. Now, you can know a lot of doctrine. You can know a lot of theology. You can know a lot of Bible and still make shipwreck of your life. Because David, number four, his prayer was also not just for information, but for guidance. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. And lead me... Uh, in your truth and remember Jesus said your word is truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation David needed a savior the ways of God we need to know how God works some of us still hadn't figured that out we got to know the ways of God and we've got to know his paths where is he leading where is he at work What is he doing? And we want to be the follower, not the leader with him. And David said, teach me because we always get it wrong. We always mess it up. Any of you teach yourselves math? And uh, it was some teacher with a chalkboard or something like that started teaching you uh, your times tables. That's what we always called them. And uh, how to add and how to subtract and how to multiply and how to divide. All of those kind of things. And in the same way, God has to teach us what his word says. And he has to teach us how he uses his word. And he also has to teach us where he's leading and where he's going because we tend to stray. And so uh, David says, this is a God of my salvation. Why? Because he was in a pickle and only God could get him out of the problem that he was in. And so think about this. We'll wrap it up by saying this. 
We don't learn, and that's why we keep making the same mistakes. We're haphazard, we're very casual, and we're forgetful about what God teaches us. We can read our Bible, have our quiet time, check it off, isn't that great? And then by 10 o'clock, we have no idea what it says. How are you going to apply it if you don't remember what it says? And so you've got to take time to actually learn and apply the Word of God. And then our problem is, even when we try real hard, we misunderstand a lot of it. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7, Solomon said, Wisdom is the principal thing. Well, we would all say amen to that. But then he adds something to it. Therefore, get wisdom, and in all your getting, get understanding. And that's where there are a lot of people that know a lot about God, and they know a lot about God's Word, but they don't have any understanding of God's ways. They don't have any understanding of God's truth. They don't have any understanding of God's paths or anything like that at all because they just want to gather information to be a teacher but they don't really want to be taught. That is a danger for every single one of us. We want God to pat us on the back and say, Oh boy, you've really learned a lot. Boy, you know that Bible, don't you? But then we don't really want Him to correct us when He says, That's not what I meant. That's not what I said. Let me put you back where you belong. Remember, we are the sheep of His pasture. Sheep stray. Sheep are vulnerable. Sheep are defenseless. And sheep are just not all that bright. So what does the shepherd do? He comes after us. What do the sheep do when the shepherd grabs the sheep by the crook of his rod? They bow up and they will bleat and they will do all of that kind of stuff because they don't like that. And you don't either. And yet it's what is so necessary to save you from the predator who is seeking to devour you. Okay? So let's do that. God, I want to know your word, but I want to know more than just the facts about your word. I want to know what it means. I want to know how you are working, and I want to know how to apply it in my life. I want to understand. I don't just want wisdom. I want understanding, the practical application of it. Can we all agree that that would be a good prayer for all of us? So that's what David is praying, and that's what he's seeking. Okay? Let's go to the Lord. Father, we come before you as just your stupid, stinking sheep that keep making the same mistakes over and over, doing things that we know better than to do. We ask you to forgive us, and we thank you that you do because of Christ. He paid for all of our sins. But we also want to ask you for something else. Don't let us be ashamed and live all of our life coming to church and being a Christian and teaching and preaching and singing all the things that we do and yet come up with an empty life. How shameful would that be? We want to bear much fruit that would remain, as John 15 says, for the glory of God. Herein is the Father glorified that you bear much fruit and that your fruit should remain. That's what we want in our witnessing in our praying, in our Bible study, in our church attendance, in our relationships with other people, we want to bear fruit. But we keep making the same mistakes over and over. We keep letting our feelings get hurt. We keep uh, lifting our soul up to certain events and certain people and certain situations thinking this will be the answer and we get trampled down into the mud again. And forgive us for that. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Let me not be ashamed, 
Let not my enemies triumph over me, is what we pray. Make us wise. Give us understanding and the wisdom that only can come from God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. If you agree, say amen.